Welcome to The Shalene Show. Today, we're talking about the very most important thing that you can do for your health. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about your mental health, physical health, sexual health, your brain health, your gut health, all of it starts with sleep. And we're learning this more and more every single day. You want to live a better life? You want to be an optimal human? Listen, we're also focused on exercise and what we're putting in our mouths and all these other crazy things that you know, sometimes can cost a lot of money and take a lot of time. But the absolute best thing, the most important thing you can do for your health is sleep. So today I have Dr. Michael Bruce here to talk to us about the things you need to know about sleep. There's a lot of new research and he is someone we've had on the show before. I love his approach. I love that this is his fascination. This is his study. And that's who we'll be talking to today on The Shalene Show. Dr. Michael Bruce is a double board certified clinical psychologist and clinical sleep specialist. He's one of only 168 psychologists in the world to have taken and passed the sleep medical boards without having gone to med school. But Dr. Bruce is also the author of several books, including his newest in 2017 and one that's on the horizon. But we're really excited about The Power of When, which really helps you understand that there is a best time to freaking do everything. There's an optimal time for you to work out, an optimal time for you to sleep, optimal time for you to eat, all of those things. And in that book, Dr. Bruce really breaks that down for you, and it's based on incredible research. He is an expert and an incredible resource for the show on all things related to sleep. You've seen him on Dr. Oz, Oprah, The Doctors. He's been in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. And he's one of our most popular and more requested guests because we know sleep is kind of freaking everything. And one of the reasons why I love talking to you is you just have a really unique way of looking at sleep, too, and helping us understand it. So I think I'd love, first of all, just say thank you for being here. Of course. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me back. I always enjoy coming back to people who love to learn, and you are one of those. I'm fascinated by all things sleep. And the last time we had a chance to speak was in 2017. And I know that there has been some interesting, I'm sure, studies and research. And like with all things, we're always learning more. Can we just start with like, what are some of the things that since the last time we talked, you would say are probably most remarkable or profound that people should be aware of? Absolutely. So I would say there's at least three different areas that we're starting to see some pretty cool stuff happening in the sleep universe. One is in terms of sleep tracking. So when last we spoke, there were a couple of sleep trackers on the market, but there are definitely more research has been done. We're now seeing that trackers are becoming more accurate, which is extremely important. You know, right when they came out, sleep is a very complicated metric. I think when I was last on the show, I talked a little bit about it. You know, when you're trying to measure somebody's steps, it's a pretty easy thing to do, right? You need to know the length of their leg, their gait, you know, how fast they're going. I mean, quite frankly, my daughter can do that calculus problem probably in her head. But sleep is a little bit different, right? So sleep, you got, is it how fast you fall asleep? Is it when you get to deep sleep? Is it when you get to REM sleep? Is it the number of awakenings? Is it the length of the awakenings? Is it the awakenings in this stage versus that stage? As you can tell, I can go on for quite a while looking at the different metrics that you can put in sleep, but it's very difficult to have one sleep score. I would say that there are a couple of groups that are starting to get better and better at that very thing. A study came out just a few weeks back looking at the Fitbit and the Aura Ring. Those two appear to be the most accurate on the marketplace, at least of the ones that were tested by this research group. And they had approximately an 85% accuracy to what we call full 
nighttime polysomnography. So that's a sleep study in a sleep laboratory. So uh -huh. one of these rings or one of these wristbands, specifically the Aura and the Fitbit, appear to have accuracy almost equal to that of a sleep laboratory. So number one, make sure what you got is actually measuring what it's supposed to measure, right? Yeah. So that's number one. And I think we're starting to learn more and more of that, which is actually quite good. The second big thing that I've seen happen lately has been sleep coaching seems to have taken off quite a bit on the internet. I'm seeing lots and lots of people out there who are saying, oh, you know, I can coach you to a better night's sleep, things of this nature. A little bit of buyer beware, I would mm, say here. Sure. Many of the people who are coaching online, unfortunately, have almost no qualifications. They're not doctors. They're not social workers. They're not psychiatrists, psychologists, PsyD. They really don't have any background other than they're a life coach. And they've decided through their life coach certification that now they know something about sleep. If you're really looking for sleep coaching, I wrote a blog. You can find it at thesleepdoctor.com. Just go to the blogs and type in coaching, and it'll give you a list of all of the parameters that you would want in a sleep coaching program if you were going to be getting involved in something like that online. It makes so much sense. Yeah, that is certainly much more popular now than it used to be. And then I'd say the third big topic that's been of interest lately, which is one here in California, it's been of interest since it went recreationally legal, which is cannabis and sleep. Lots and lots of questions and comments and concerns about, is it good? Is it bad for sleep? I've written extensively. I've written over 16,000 words on cannabis and sleep on the website. So if people have an interest and want to know exactly how it affects, is it useful for insomnia? Those types of questions, we did, a, I think, a nice job of answering a lot of that for consumers out there, but also happy to talk about all three of those topics here on the show. But these are big, big areas that we're starting to see happen in sleep these days. Oh, I, I guess there's one more one that I just recalled in the medical side of things, which is really interesting. There's a new device that helps people for who have mild apnea and mild snoring completely mm -hmm. get rid of their CPAP machine. Super excited about that. But I do have to say the one thing to me that I was just like, duh, is a sleep coach. Think about it. Right. If we know that sleep is the one metric that affects every single function of your body, performance, cognition, aging, like all the things that we care about. Memory. Everything. Stamina, sexuality, like libido, like. Metabolism. Anything and everything. I used to say this all the time. Everything you do, you do better with a good night's sleep. <laughs> Thousand percent. So it just was like, I just had this moment where I'm like, that's so crazy. We have nutrition coaches, right. we have dating coaches, we've got fitness coaches, any type of specialty sport coach you can imagine. But the one thing that like really controls all of those things is sleep. So why wouldn't we have thought to find someone who's an expert in coaching and sleep? So thank you for that. I will definitely put a link to your blog on that as well as your writings on THC and cannabis and the impact it has on sleep. Can you start by explaining to us what the difference is between sleep drive Mm -hmm. and sleep rhythm. You bet. So it turns out that there are two distinct systems in the brain that help produce sleep. One is called your sleep drive. The other is called your sleep rhythm. It turns out there are both a lot like hunger, right? So you ever notice like, okay. I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. I eat something and the hunger begins to dissipate. The same holds true with sleep. When a cell eats a piece of glucose, something comes out the back end. One of those things is called adenosine. 
Adenosine works its way through the system and goes to a very specific receptor site in your brain and it accumulates, right? As it accumulates, you get sleepier and sleepier and sleepier. Now, as an aside, if you look at the molecular structure of caffeine and you look at the molecular structure of adenosine, they're off by one molecule, which is kind of amazing when you think about the thing that makes you feel sleepy and the thing that wakes you up is literally difference by one single molecule. But that's how sleep drive works is this accumulation of adenosine. We'll get back to caffeine and, and the molecular structure of it in just a second. When we look at rhythm, this is also called your circadian rhythm, right? So just like lunch, breakfast, dinner, right? You get hungry around breakfast time, you get hungry around lunch time, you get hungry around dinner time. That's your circadian rhythm for eating. You have one of those for sleep as well, right? And so most people, at least here in North mm-hmm. America, have a tendency to get tired somewhere between 10 and about 11, 11.30 at night. Now, if you want to really dig deeper in that, you can look at something called chronotypes. So my third book is called The Power of When, because it teaches people exactly when to do things based on this thing called their chronotype. Now, some of your audience members may not have ever heard the term chronotype before, but I guarantee you they have heard of what the concept is, right? So if anybody's ever been called an early bird or a night owl, those are chronotypes. Hmm. So my contribution to the literature and what I wrote my book about was I found a fourth chronotype. So we used to just think that there were early birds, people in the middle, and night owls. And by the way, this is not something new. There was somebody that created a scale in the 70s to help identify this. But even if you go back to hunter-gatherer days, right? So when we lived in villages, Mm -hmm. you know who were the early birds? Those were the hunters. They woke up before dawn. They snuck up on the animals. They killed them, and they brought them back to the village. Who were the people in the middle, what we called hummingbirds? Those are the people that tended the village and built the businesses and did all those things inside of there. Who were the night owls? Probably the security force right? They were up anyway, so they might as well be standing outside making sure that all these people don't get hurt. So this early bird middle night owl has been around for a very long time. My contribution was I found a type of insomnia that fell exactly into this category. Most people don't realize it, but this whole idea of chronotype is genetic. It's actually in your genes. Like if you Mm. sent me your 23andMe data or your Ancestry.com data, I could actually show you in your genetics where there was a flip-flop that makes you an early bird or a night owl or one of these other types. So here's where it gets really interesting is once you figure out what category you're in, it's like unlocking the key to your body. It's unbelievable because your body will follow the exact same path every single day. And when you know the path, you can predict when to do things. That's why it's called the power of when. So I'll give you an example the one that everybody always wants to know about, intimacy, okay? Is there a perfect time to be intimate with your partner? It turns out that there is. So let me go through the science for it so people can get a, a quick understanding. So as an example, in order to be intimate and to have sexual relationship, you need to have five hormones. You need to have estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, adrenaline, and cortisol all need to be high, and you need melatonin, the sleep hormone, to be low. Sorry to interrupt, but you're saying yes. that these things are ideal. So in other words, you can't use as, oh, honey, I can't tonight. My melatonin is low. <laughs> exactly. Well, just listen. Here's where it gets interesting, right? So number one, we did a survey and we said, you know, what time do people like to have sex? It turns out 73% of people like to have sex between 1030 and 1130 at night. Okay. That's what your hormone profile looks like at 1030 to 1130 at night. 
your melatonin is high and all five of those other ones are low. So that's hint mm. number one about when the best time may be to have sex. Hint number two, what do most men wake up with in the morning? An yeah. erection, right? If that is not mother nature telling you when to use that thing, I don't know oh, what no. is. Oh right? no, you're gonna tell us it's in the morning. So it turns out <laughs> that morning intimacy actually works out much better for people from a performance standpoint, also from a connection standpoint. Really, for men and women, are we certain about this? So it's what's really interesting is when we resurveyed and we asked men what was the time that they preferred, they said anytime. When we asked women, they said morning time, almost overwhelmingly. You are kidding. Okay, well, I am going to challenge this study and I'm going to ask my Instagram followers. Unless they were an early bird. Ah. If they were an early bird, it was a lot different. It was actually closer to earlier times in the evening, like seven o'clock in the evening. So it's quite interesting when you start to look at it. But the point is, if you know your category, you start to understand your path. Yeah. The big question I always get is, well, what if my partner's an early bird and I'm a night owl, right. Michael? What do I do there? Well, if people buy the book, I actually created a matrix where you can put your chronotype across one side, your partner's chronotype across the other side. And you can actually figure out exactly two times, one in the early evening and one in the early morning to try it out. Give it, do an experiment, have some fun, <laughs> figure it out, see what's going on. I also created charts for both lesbian and homosexual couples because the hormone profiles are different. Yeah, fantastic. Well, this is really fascinating. I would love to know if there is, for people that are listening, who have, they've done everything. Like they've read the books, they've listened to the podcast, and they also are completely in agreement that I've got to get better sleep, but they just, for whatever reason, they've got insomnia or they're a shift worker or they have right. small humans that don't seem to care much about mom and dad's right. sleep. And, you know, not to overgeneralize, but certainly this is more common for women. I think from my own experience, after I had kids, like I just stopped sleeping as much or as soundly. But for that person who's like, listen, I'm doing all the things, I'm shutting off my screens, I'm meditating. I'm not having caffeine after a certain hour. I'm doing all of the things, but I still can't get good sleep. Is there any suggestion or benefit to them doing a sleep aid? Or what other suggestions do you have for that person who says, I've done all the lifestyle stuff and I'm still not getting sleep? Absolutely. So number one, let's get something incredibly clear. There are some people who need a pill to mm. sleep. That's just how it works for some people. I liken it a bit to high blood pressure, right? So if I've got a patient who comes in who exercises, eats right, does all the things right, but still has high blood pressure, we stick them on a pill to lower their blood pressure. They're not addicted to that pill. There's nothing wrong with them for being on that pill. And they're actually following their doctor's orders and are actually safer and healthier by being on said mm -hmm. pill. I would argue that there is definitely a group of people out there where this would hold true for sleeping pills. Now, look, I'm not saying everybody needs to be on a sleeping pill. I am saying that I think sleeping pills are overprescribed. I think too many doctors use this as a very simple Band-Aid because what we usually call insomnia is what we call a door handle diagnosis, is as the doctor's got their hand on the door and they're just about to walk out, the patient says, oh, by the way, doc, I don't sleep so well. And so they don't have the time, they pull up the prescription pad, they write a script and they say, take this for 30 days and come back and see me. The problem isn't that they give them a sleeping pill. The problem is, is that they don't give them the tools to use 
to know how to use the sleeping pill and how to come off the sleeping pill safely and effectively. Mm. That seems to be the biggest issues. So whenever we use it in our practice, number one, I'm a PhD, not an MD, so I don't prescribe anything. I work with people's psychiatrists. We use sleeping pills to break the cycle of insomnia. So if I've got a patient who shows up and says, Michael, I can't get more than four hours of sleep a night, you bet your bottom they're going to be on a sleeping pill pretty quickly because they're in what we would consider to be almost a crisis situation. You, You just can't survive for extended periods of time on less than five and a half to six hours of sleep. So we might use that as an intervention. And I would argue we would use it for 30, 60, maybe even 90 days to really lock in their cycle. Then we would take another 90 days to slowly taper them off while teaching them all of the behavioral things that they need to do now that they're sleeping better. Because the last thing we need is them reliant on the pill. Because if you have a sleep problem and all you do is take a pill, you now have a sleep problem and a pill problem. And that's not what we're trying to accomplish. There are some things about over-the-counter sleep aids that I wanted to address quickly as well, not prescription ones and not herbal ones, but ones that we can grab in the grocery Mm -hmm. or at the drugstore. I really want people to understand that there's now data to suggest that these are linked to Alzheimer's and dementia. There have been multiple studies showing that frequent use of the, quote, PM medications out there that PM is actually Benadryl and long-term use of Benadryl is not good. There's been at least three studies to show that it is highly correlated with Alzheimer's and dementia. So if you're taking one of those more than let's say once or twice a week, you want to have a conversation with your doctor to learn, Hey, number one, is there something better that I could be on prescription or not? Number two, are there any other methods or things like cognitive behavioral therapy that I can do that would be much more not only safe, but long-term actually give me a better skill set. Would you believe that the data shows that if you put somebody on Ambien for 30 days and you put them on cognitive behavioral therapy for 30 days, that the therapy wins every single time? Wouldn't be surprised at all by that. All right, we're going to take a quick break to recognize our show sponsor, MySoulCBD.com. You guys know that I love CBD and I think it's a really important tool to use when you're trying to cut down on inflammation in your body. The way that it is able to help your central nervous system is the reason why you hear CBD being talked about in terms of providing relief for so many different things, period cramps, anxiety, sleep, inflammation, so many different things that people are talking about using CBD. And you might think to yourself, how is this even possible? Is it too good to be true? Well, CBD actually helps your central nervous system recalibrate. And that's why it is so powerful when it comes to helping anything that relates to pain, anxiety, inflammation, sleep issues, etc. Now, the question is, how do you find a reputable CBD company? And the answer is my soul CBD. They have zero THC, which means you're not going to get high from doing it. You can actually give it to your children. All of their products contain zero THC, and they are third-party lab-tested. I personally think that it's a wonderful alternative to use the CBD gummies. That's what we're using right now for Bob. I take the CBD gummies myself. I take them in conjunction with the Dream Capsules. That's my absolute favorite product for My Soul CBD. All of their products are grown here in the USA. They are organically farmed. They are gluten-free. They also have 
some amazing oils. So like if you don't want to do the gummies and if you're not a capsules kind of girl or guy, then check out their oils, the drops. You just put a couple of drops underneath your tongue. It's amazing. They've got a new one. I think it's called Watermelon Mint. Can't remember the name of it. But they just, you could add them to your water. They really do make a huge difference. And yes, even Rocco, our dog, is now doing the My Soul CBD pet line. It's amazing. And what's really cool is you're going to get 20% off automatically at checkout when you go to, here's the website. Don't forget it. It's mysoulcbd.com forward slash Shaleen. Don't forget the forward slash Shaleen. Then you don't have to enter a code. That 20% will be taken for you automatically at checkout. Again, it is mysoulcbd.com forward slash Shaleen. And as always, the show sponsors links are in our show notes. So while you're listening to the podcast, you can just kind of hover your finger over the show art, look at our show notes, you can just click on it and you can order while you continue listening to this episode of The Shaleen Show. How cool is that? All right, back to the show. With regard to the Tylenol PM and the correlation between that and people having a higher incidence of Alzheimer's and dementia, mm-hmm. you know, we know correlation doesn't necessarily prove causation. Yep. And my first question, and I'm fascinated by that conversation at the current moment, my husband and I are full-time caregivers for my father-in-law who has Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And he is my science project. And I have track his sleep with an aura ring. Awesome. And, you know, and also just the history of his personality and sleep patterns. I've been very fascinated by those. And sure. this is the kind of individual that would never take a Tylenol PM, never take anything. But he you know, looking back at his life, he was forever chronically sleep deprived and a worrier and, you know, just someone who, so it makes me wonder if that person who, if there is a correlation and if that correlation means causation, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Is this our people? I wonder if there is not something, as you said, genetically predisposed in the minds of certain individuals where we just, it is tougher for us to sleep. We don't want to sleep. And so therefore you go years and years with sleep deprivation. And then we start to go like, oh, this person has Alzheimer's and they're getting really, really bad sleep once they have Alzheimer's. I wish we knew when that started. So I think I can tell you. Okay. So there's been some data that's happened in the last probably two to three years that has been quite interesting. It's been the identification of something called the glymphatic system of the brain. Right. And so the glymphatic system of the brain, I call it the waste management system of the brain. So, you know, those big trucks that come by and they get all your garbage every day or every week or whatever. So waste management. So what happens only during stages three and four sleep, when growth hormone is emitted the most, which is in the first third of the night, this is when the glymphatic system goes in and scoops out all of those damaging proteins that are left in there called beta amyloid and tau. These two proteins in particular, when they accumulate in your brain, they wrap themselves around the nerve endings and they strangle them. That is basically the definition of Alzheimer's and dementia, right? So when we look at that, we start to wonder, hmm, could this individual, not picking on your father-in-law, but that generation was not known for doing anything other than toughing it out and never needing a medication type of thing. By doing that, when they end up reducing their stage three, four sleep, which is their physical restoration sleep, the glymphatic system doesn't clear the area. You get proliferation of these proteins. That's when you have a real problem on your hands. If I had to guess, I would say that the extra ingredients in those over-the-counter medications 
probably have something to do with affecting the glymphatic system. Okay. That is a guess, just to be sure, clear. Sure. I have no data to support that. Yeah. But it would make intuitive sense since we have a really good idea of what of how sleep can influence Alzheimer's progression through this glymphatic system. And we know that by taking these allergy medications, because that's really what they are, antihistamine allergy medications for extended periods of time, I think there's something in there that could be leading people down that path. And let's be clear, as we get older, our sleep doesn't get better. It actually has a tendency to get a bit weaker. The amplitude of the waveforms begins to shrink. In fact, when we have somebody that's over the age of 60 in the sleep laboratory, we must score their sleep study differently than somebody who's under 60 because their brain is not functioning at the same level. Mm -hmm. So there's lots going on that, that could be happening that could be contributing to your father-in-law's situation. But having been sleep deprived for many, many years certainly is not a positive. What's remarkable, you know, looking at the data from his nightly sleep patterns is, you know, we have to keep him in or try our best to keep him in bed for about 12 hours in order for him to get maybe two sleep cycles. So he, really? he's, yes, he's getting like, even though he's in light sleep the entire night, there will, mm -hmm. you know, on, I think the most deep sleep I've ever seen him get is about mm, 15 minutes. Yep. What about REM sleep? Does he get REM? No. REM sleep is anywhere from a minute to, I think I've seen maybe five minutes max. How about that? So as we get older, I will tell you that the accuracy of the tool set, a ring, a watch, things like that can change. And here's why. As an example, let's take the wrist. As we get older, you'll notice that there's less subcutaneous fat underneath your skin. There's less cushioning. So when you see somebody who's older, you can start to see their veins. They almost look translucent, mm -hmm. right? So what ends up happening there is that when you have a device that's trying to measure something on that, it doesn't measure it very well because it's trying to catch a signal that normally would be on the outside that's now on the inside. Mm -hmm. So as we get older, we need to find better trackers, number one. But number two, there's no way that your father-in-law is only getting three minutes of REM and really? two minutes of... No way. Oh, really? Absolutely no way that he's only getting that. My guess would be that the measurement tool is probably somewhat inaccurate only because of his age, let's say. And the reason why you're able to say that there's no way is because you wouldn't survive? Humans don't exist by getting three minutes of REM sleep a night. It just doesn't happen, honestly. Well, let me rephrase that. It could happen if you had a very specific tumor in a very specific area of your head. My guess is your father-in-law does not have that. You'd know that well in advance by now. Are there any studies that have looked at sleep cycles and patterns of Alzheimer's patients? There are. Unfortunately, it's not my area of expertise, so I don't know them off the top sure. of my head, other than to tell you that they do have reduced amounts, but that has more to do with difficulty in actually measuring it. As an example, if I took your father-in-law and I put a headband on him that could measure EEG all night long, I'll bet you he's got more REM sleep than three minutes or more slow wave sleep than four. But here's how people out there can use this data still and have it still be effective. Let's say that you look at your Aura Ring data or your Fitbit data or whatever, and it says three minutes of REM sleep, and it says three minutes every single night for a week. Mm -hmm. Don't worry. Let me be clear. Don't worry. It is consistently being inaccurate. Okay. That makes if, sense. however, you got three minutes one night, 147 the next, and 412 the next, that's when I want to know what's going on. 
So you look at the relative data, not the absolute numbers, because again, we're still in the very early stages of tracking our sleep. In other words, it's more important to look at a pattern and the overall and use it as a guide. It's a reference point. Exactly. Okay. And the other thing I wanted to just throw out there, I know I keep jumping ahead of you, is there's two things about sleep that people have got to understand. One is discipline. The other is acceptance. Okay, let's go there. What do you mean by both of those things? So discipline means doing the smart thing. So waking up at the same time every day. Notice I didn't say going to bed. Yeah. You can go to bed when you want. Wake up at the same time every single day. Okay. I promise if you do one thing, if you heard one piece of advice from this entire conversation, if you just wake up at the same time every day, preferably based on your chronotype, you will absolutely positively improve your sleep. That's where the discipline comes in, okay? The other two things to be disciplined about are caffeine and alcohol, okay? Stop caffeine by 2 p.m., just stop, all right? Caffeine has a half-life of between six and eight hours, right? If you stop at two, half of it is out of your system by 10, you should have a reasonable chance of getting to sleep, okay? Now, if you wanna be better at it, Stop your caffeine much earlier in the day. To be clear, caffeine has no nutritional value (laughs) whatsoever. It is a stimulant. Now, there's got to be about 10% of your population that listens to this, and here's what they're thinking right now. Huh, Dr. Bruce, sleep guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I can have an espresso and go right to sleep. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to tell you something. There's three things that you have to think about when you can do something like that. Number one is, are you really absorbing the caffeine? So I have a patient who has an espresso every night before she falls asleep. She sleeps for nine hours. And when I track her sleep, it's perfect. So we did a genomic study on her and we discovered that her body doesn't process caffeine well. And so no, she can take this dose of caffeine and it actually takes a very small amount of it. So she can drink caffeine all day and it has almost no effect on her. That's number one. Number two, there are people that actually have caffeine sensitivities. So some people can eat a chocolate kiss and be up for two days. Other people can, you know, drink a pot of coffee and go right to sleep. This could have something to do with this genomics research that I was talking about just a moment ago. The third thing to remember is I don't really care. Caffeine's a stimulant and you stuck it in your head. So guess what? it's going to affect the quality of your sleep. You might still be able to fall asleep just because you're so doggone tired, but it will affect the quality of that sleep. And that's really the thing to be observant about. With alcohol, it's very simple. When you drink a drink of alcohol, you stop time. You drink that drink and your whole circadian rhythm slows down because now you've put alcohol in the picture, right? The reason that people wake up at three o'clock in the morning after having passed out instead of going to bed Mm -hmm. is because they literally put an IV in their arm, right? And then it finally came out and their brain is like, holy crap, what just happened to me? You wake up at three o'clock in the morning, you're sweating, you have to pee and you don't know what time it is and you're very disoriented. Simple rule, drink one glass of wine, drink one glass of water, wait one hour. Okay. Two glasses of wine, two glasses of water, two hours you gotta stop at two. Here's why. Once you get more than two alcoholic beverages in your brain, your brain says, oh crap, there's a toxin in here. I need to jack up my cortisol because I don't know what's going on. 
Now you're an energetic drunk trying to go to sleep. <laughs> it just doesn't work well. That's so the big three things that you've got from a discipline standpoint is wake up at the same time every day, stop caffeine by two, stop all alcohol, limit to two drinks, stop all alcohol within three hours of bedtime. The acceptance part is much more difficult. Okay. The rules that I just gave you are super easy to follow. But let's say the situation that you mentioned earlier happens. I've done everything right, Michael. I have a cool room. I have a dark room. I'm not thinking about stressful shit. But all of a sudden, it's 2.30 in the morning and I'm wide awake. What is going on there and how do I fix that? So here's what's interesting. I believe, and I've had a lot of success at this, that sleep is really energy transfer, right? So we've got energy during the day, and then we're going to transfer that energy to an unconscious state. During that unconscious state, our body's going to be needing to do a whole host of things with that extra energy that we've now closed our eyes and stopped moving our body around because it needs to repair, it needs to process, it needs to do all these different things. Sometimes our body wakes up in the middle of the night. Usually it's between two and three o'clock in the morning. Okay. So first of all, let's talk about why that happens at that time. When you fall asleep at night, your core body temperature rises, rises, rises. When it hits 1030 at night, it hits a peak and begins to fall. When it starts to fall, it hits a trough. Okay. When it hits that bottom level, it has to rise again for you to wake up. Guess what time it starts to rise? between two and three in the morning. Oh. So your body is getting warmer then, which makes it easier for you to wake up. So that's the reason, number one, why most people wake up during that time. Mm -hmm. So what we see happen, which is interesting, is if people can wake up, number one, don't look at the clock, which is pretty much impossible. Hmm. Almost every single person, when they wake up in the middle of the night, looks at the clock, they instantly do the mental math and then they're pissed off, right? <laughs> Then they're like, oh, are you kidding me? It's 2.30 in the morning. I got to be up at six. Sleep, sleep, yeah, sleep. And yeah. they try really hard to sleep. Trying to sleep is about the worst idea there is. I always say sleep is a lot like love. The less you look for it, the more it shows up. Interesting. Right? So remember when you were out there just trying to find that person and you could never find them. And then the second you stopped looking, that person wandered into your life. That's exactly how sleep is in the middle of the night. You must accept the fact that your body knows what it's doing. Mm. There's a reason you woke up. You may not be aware of it. That's okay. Relax. Your body has woken you up for a reason. Do you need to go to the bathroom? Go to the bathroom. If you do not need to go to the bathroom, don't yeah. relax. Okay, okay, okay. Slow your heart rate down because in order to re-enter into a state of unconsciousness, your heart rate must be at 60 or below. Mm -hmm. What's the easiest way to drop your heart rate? Four, seven, eight breathing. I'm going to teach everybody a technique right now that you can use in the middle of the night. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Breathe in for a count of four. Hold it for a count of seven. Breathe out for a count of eight. This is not something I developed. The Navy SEALs developed this for their snipers in order to make sure that their heart rate would drop significantly before they fired their weapon. It works incredibly well, and it's an easy thing to do in the middle of the night. So look at the clock, say, it's okay. My body knows what it's doing. I'm now going to relax and do some four, seven, eight breathing and see if the natural sleep process will allow me to fall back asleep. Remember, 
just lying there is actually recuperative. Mm. Like an hour's worth of lying there is worth about 15 minutes of sleep. So I tell people all the time, just chill out, trust in the process. I promise you, if you need to fall back asleep, you will. If you don't, you won't. And then get up and start your day, but Mm. don't whatever you do. If you have a really bad night, do not go to bed early. Say that again. If you had a really bad night. So let's say last night I was a horrible night of sleep and I feel sleep deprived all day. And I'm thinking about that all day. And I've told myself I'm going to go to bed earlier tonight. You're suggesting that that's a bad decision. I'm telling you, that's the worst decision you could well, possibly why, make. Why? That seems so counterintuitive. Because you're not honoring your circadian rhythm. Ah. Have you ever been out working in the garden or worked out or gone for a hike? You get in the end of the day and you're exhausted and you think to yourself, the kids are gone. I'm going to sneak in and I'm going to go to bed at 7.30, 8 o'clock. You ever do that? Sure. What happens? It's so rare that I, I can't remember. I'll tell you what happens. You get in there. You may fall asleep for five minutes, if that, and all of a sudden you're just looking at the ceiling. Mm. You've got an exhausted body and you're looking at the ceiling because your circadian rhythm is not on par. Okay. You know when you get tired every night, honor that and go to bed at that time. Okay. What will happen is if you go to bed two, three hours early, you'll fall asleep for a few minutes. You will have lowered that sleep drive. Remember we were talking about sleep drive at the beginning of the conversation. You won't have enough to make it through the night. Okay. Got it. Got it. All right. So then I think, you know, we've talked about the chronotypes in our last podcast. I'll put a link to that in our show notes too, because I think that's really interesting for folks to begin to understand what type they are and what you can do about it. We answered all those questions the last time you were a guest here on the show. But I did want to just briefly, if we can recap, because we've talked a lot about restorative sleep and getting us, you know, great sleep. And we've talked, just touched a little bit on sleep cycles. Can you explain to our listeners the difference between and the benefits, I guess, of each deep sleep and REM sleep and sleep cycles? So generally speaking, our brain likes to do a particular dance. It does the same steps every single night in the same order, almost every single night. We go from wake to stage one to stage two, down into stage three and four, back to stage two, and then on into REM sleep. That little dance maneuver takes approximately 90 minutes. That is called a sleep cycle. We count sleep cycles by the number of REM periods that a person has. And so generally speaking, we like five of those REM cycles. Now, if you're good at math, you have just realized that five times 90 is seven and a half hours. So eight hours is a myth. Let me say that one more time. Eight hours is a myth. There are some people that don't have 90-minute cycles. I have an 80-minute cycle, and I sleep roughly six hours and 15 minutes, and I get five full cycles. So everybody's cycle length is a little bit different. You can figure that out with a sleep tracker, and that's usually what I do with some of my patients. Now, if you want to wonder, hmm, now Michael said there's stage three, four sleep, and there's REM sleep. What do all these do? Do I want a lot? Do I want a little? What's the story here? Stages three, four sleep is your 100% physical restoration. This is your wake up and feel great sleep. This is really beauty sleep. Like if you were looking for beauty sleep, this is it because it's when the most growth hormone is emitted. And this is when your body takes care of all the other things. Like if you brought your car into the body shop and got the dents and the dings and all of that kind of pulled out, that's what stage three, four sleep is. And for stage you, three, right? four sleep, is that what we would consider deep sleep? Yes. Okay. And is there a difference between deep sleep and deep wave sleep? 
Are they the same thing? So here's the problem. We have five different words for the same thing. Ah. Okay. So deep sleep is the same as slow wave sleep. Okay. Is the same as beauty sleep. Great. Is the same as S3 sleep and is the same as stage three and four sleep. Cool. All of those terms mean exactly the same thing. It's very confusing. So someone who doesn't get a lot of deep sleep, that's typically the person that's going to wake up feeling more sore and they feel more tired, achy. They feel tired. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And then what about REM sleep? REM sleep is our mental restoration. So REM sleep is when we move information from our short-term memory to our long-term memory, creating an organizational substructure inside our heads for retrieval. And the way we do this is through dreams. And so the manifestation in our head of this information moving and going into the right filing cabinet usually comes out in a bizarre nature called a dream. So if you had a dream that you walk downstairs and your, you know, second grade, your dog is eating a bowl of spaghetti at the kitchen table with your second grade teacher and you don't know why, (laughs) here's what probably happened is you probably had good Italian that night. Your dog jumped on the bed and you need to remind yourself not to let the dog in the room anymore. And your second grader was talking about something which reminded you of your second grade teacher. And that's how all of that showed up in your dream. So cool. Right. But REM sleep is really about mental restoration and emotional processing. So my husband and I both track our sleep. And of course, you know, we compare our numbers to each other every single day. And I get massive amounts of deep sleep. I mean, at least I get a good score there. And so, for example, last night I'm looking and I had two and a half hours of deep sleep and I had 53 minutes of REM sleep, which is kind of a lot for me. Normally, I'm usually much lower. So I usually get a poor score in my REM sleep. And so I tell them that's why I wake up every day feeling so energetic and I feel like I'm very well rested. I just can't remember anything. (laughs) And (laughs) that's pretty true. You know, and he's the opposite. He wakes up and can remember everything, can play back the tape for mm-hmm. me, but feels like old and broken down. And he's always sore. And, you know, he always feels like he needs more rest. Is there a way yes. to, and how much of that's genetic? I, I'm assuming a great deal, but I've read everything I can to get more REM sleep. But do I just need to accept the fact that I'm one of those people that's going to be always get less REM? So it depends. The experiment that I would run is make your life decaffeinated first and see what that does to your REM Mm -hmm. sleep. There's a very high likelihood you'll start to see an increase in REM sleep. To be clear, this all has to be done while you're keeping the same schedule. It has to be based on your chronotype. So the easiest way to improve REM sleep and deep sleep is to sleep within your chronotypical timeframe or what I call swim lane, because we know that your brain wants to sleep then and will immediately do that. As an example, I get a tremendous amount of both deep and REM sleep, and I only sleep for six hours and 15 minutes, but that's because I sleep at the exact same six hours and 15 minutes every single night. So my brain knows what to do. Mm. The second thing you do is, like I said, decaffeinate. So pull caffeine out of your life. Please do not go cold turkey on caffeine. I've had two patients end up in the ER because of that. Jeez. So don't do that. You need to slowly. Caffeine is the most addictive substance on the face of the earth. It's more addictive than heroin. You need to be very, very careful as you slowly pull yourself off of that. The next thing you would want to do is take all alcohol out of your life and then see. And what you will see is you will see it will take three to four months. You will absolutely see a rise in both your slow wave sleep and your REM sleep, because alcohol affects both. 
and caffeine affects more REM sleep than anything else. So removing those two things, number one, is helpful. But understanding where your sleep lane is and sleeping during that will give you the biggest bang for your buck by far. So it's really fascinating, not to make this all about me, but when I look at my sleep cycle, I don't get REM until the late morning. Like huh? most days I, I'm not getting REM until after about 3 a.m. And then I'm seeing a lot of REM like just before my wake time, which makes me wonder if I should be sleeping longer to get more REM or sleeping in later, I should say. So here's what's interesting is number one, that is a predictable pattern. We have a tendency to see the most slow wave sleep at the beginning of the night and okay. the most REM sleep at the end of the night. Okay. If you were sleeping based on your chronotype, your REM would start to spread out, number one. But number two, your suspicion about sleeping a little bit longer in the morning might work. So you know how we've been in this thing called a pandemic for the last two (laughs) years? Yes, sir. Well, they've noticed these things called quarren dreams. I don't know if you've heard about this. No. But when people stopped following their sleep schedules and they started actually sleeping later because they didn't have to roll, all they had to do was roll out of bed, throw on a ball cap and get onto Zoom. What ended up happening is they extended their REM periods. And because it's such a stressful time, they ended up having nightmares. So oddly enough, we're actually asking people to wake up at their normal wake up times instead of extending their sleep because it's so stressful. They're having these stress related dreams. Wow. That's phenomenal. Super interesting. Okay. So my next question for you is most experts tell us, you know, not to watch TV before we go to bed, et cetera. But I also know so many people say like, if I don't do that, my mind starts racing. I have a hard time like not thinking about things. And I think you're one of the few experts I've heard say, offer different advice. Can you share with us what your theory is with regard to TV consumption? Yeah. So when I met my wife, we've been married for 21 years. She said, Michael, if we ever have a sleepover, you need to understand that I sleep with the television on. So I said, <laughs> don't you worry, hon. I'm going to be a sleep doctor. I'll fix that. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't know how many people have been successful at fixing anything with their partners. <laughs> so I removed the television and she told me to remove myself. And that the only way I was getting back into the bedroom was if I put the television back in. So I promptly put the television back in and I began to study her. And here's what I discovered is she doesn't actually watch it. She listens to it. Yeah. And it's kind of out of the corner of her ear. Honestly, guys, 99% of the televisions out there have got a timer built into them. I'm the only sleep doctor in the universe that says it's okay to fall asleep with the TV on. Just set the timer for like two hours later and let it click off naturally and you will be fine and nobody will be harmed and it's just fine. That's awesome advice. Thank you for that. Although I assume when it comes to our phones, What's your opinion there? So my phones are a little bit different and I'll explain why. Number one, they're closer to you. So you are getting a little bit more blue light exposure. And interactive. Yeah, but it's all about engagement. If you're trying to get your high score on Candy Crush, you ain't trying to go to bed. (laughs) I love it. Okay, so if the average sleep cycle is 90 minutes. Yep. And I'm feeling exhausted or I didn't do a great job of sleeping last night or I feel like my immune system's low and I'm going to try to prioritize taking a nap. Does my nap need to be a full sleep cycle? Do I need to get 90 minutes for there to be benefit? So here's the thing about napping. Number one, if you have insomnia, never, ever nap. Mm. Let me repeat myself. If you have insomnia, never, ever nap. You reduce your sleep drive. You're done. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you're dragging it, 
and you've only got four and a half hours of sleep last night and you really need to take a nap, many times people nap too long and they feel worse, not better when they wake up. Yeah. 25 minutes or less is really where you want to be because it takes that long to get into deep sleep. And so that way you don't end up in deep sleep and it's, it works out a whole lot better. Oh, so in other words, what you're doing is, is you're just getting light sleep. We're not Correct. going through a full cycle. You're saying that Correct. it's beneficial to just do a quick nap, a power nap. Yeah, it's just enough to bring down your sleep drive in order to make it worthwhile. So I'd say a 25 minute nap. And if you really want to have some gusto, drink a cup of black coffee two minutes before the nap. No cream, no sugar. I call it a napa latte. Here's what you do. Take a cup of drip black coffee. It has the highest caffeine content, about 100 okay. milligrams. Throw in three ice cubes merely to cool it down. Then slug it and take a 25-minute nap. Really? Remember how I was telling you at the very beginning of our talk how the molecular structure of caffeine and the molecular structure of adenosine are off by one molecule? Yes. When you take a nap, you burn through the adenosine. The caffeine's waiting in the wings. It clicks into the receptor site. You're good for four hours, guaranteed. I'm glad you brought that up. That's remarkable. I think our listeners will have to put that to the test and see how that works. And then lastly, I wanted to ask you, blue blocking or, you know, the, yep. the glasses. Blue light blocking or glasses. Or yes. I, a lot of people talking about wearing those. I've seen, I want to caution, regardless of what your advice is to us, I see a lot of people buying uh, knockoffs of them. So I guess our first order of business might be to help us understand, are they actually effective? And if so, do we need to wear them all the time at a certain time of day? Great questions. So number one, I've written extensively about this. On I have a blog that says what to look for in blue light blocking mm. glasses. So number one, yes, they are effective. Ooh. Do you need to wear them all day long? No, you do not. Now, there is some data to suggest that eye strain from being at a computer all day can be difficult. And there may be some protective eyewear that could be useful for that, but that's different than what we're talking about here. Blue light blocking glasses need to be amber in color. They cannot be clear. Okay. There are three ways that the frequent that light affects your ability to sleep. One is through brightness. The other is through frequency. The final is through angle. So frequency, the blue light frames have got a coating on them that pushes out that blue light frequency, which is 460 to 480 nanometers. The reason you can't have a clear lens is because it doesn't allow for brightness. The amber takes away the brightness, and that's really where the magic seems to happen. You also want lenses that'll cover almost your entire eye orbit. Oh. So they want to be rather large. Wow. You don't want teeny tiny, super cool <laughs> John Lennon blue light blocking glasses type of thing because okay. they ain't going to do you a whole lot of good. I love it. Well, that's really good to know. And I think probably the most interesting for people to hear is that the idea of eight hours is can be a myth. Having said that, having everybody in my family tracks their sleep, you know, we care very much about brain health. Alzheimer's runs in the family. I have ADHD. We've got brain injuries. So sleep, we know, is that very important healing component. We care about our health. So everybody tracks their sleep. But having said that, and so I'm fascinated, I'm always wanting to look at everybody's numbers and everybody's scores, and all my friends now track their sleep too, and so I'm always asking to look at oh. their scores. And what I've learned is that some people, like yourself, are incredibly efficient. They go to bed. If they're in bed for seven hours, then they're getting seven hours with the sleep. And then there are those people who every single day, they're in bed, let's say, for eight hours, but they're getting six hours. They're less right. efficient at sleeping. So is right. it your opinion that you know, the, the time that we spend in bed isn't really the metric or the measure by which we should be saying, okay, that was a successful night, but really how much sleep am I getting? 
So I would argue it's much more important to know how much sleep that you're mm. getting. And this is why I ask people, if you just sleep based on your chronotype, you won't waste a whole lot of time. Love it. Okay. Like this is the crux of the issue, which is people get in bed and they have to be in bed for nine hours to get six hours of sleep. That seems stupid to me. Mm. I'd much rather go in bed, knock off, get my sleep, knock out and be alive and doing what <laughs> I want to do every single day. And you can do that if you follow your chronotype. That is the easiest thing, easiest way that you can do that. And you will honestly condense your sleep cycle, whether you like it or not. Well, if we haven't already, hopefully everyone's very enticed to go back and listen to that interview we did in 2017, where you just detail yeah. that. The last thing is just a personal question. I'm just super curious and I'm, I'm not certain if you can share any details with us, but I'm excited that you're in the process of releasing a new book. Can you share with us yeah. any hints? I can. So the new book is called Energize, How to Go from Dragging Ass to Kicking It in 30 Days. <laughs> what a great title. Thank you. That's um, awesome. And so what we're doing is I took the four chronotypes and I layered on body types. Mm. So if you remember back from high school, endomorph, mesomorph, ectomorph, it turns out that when we surveyed, so I've had over a million people take the quiz now. And what we did was we sent about 10,000 people this secondary quiz looking at body types. Mm -hmm. And we rediscovered certain exercise works better for helping people maintain their energy than others. And so we created a sleep and exercise program that will give you consistent energy throughout your day. Wow, music to my ears. It takes 30 days to adapt to it, and it works. It's amazing. You know, I just love that we are starting to finally recognize that we are all not the same. That there is not right. one prescription, whether it's for nutrition or a bedtime or exercise that categorically works for everyone. We are so individualized. So our approach to health should be too. So this is a, a really exciting book. We'll have to have you back on the show to talk about that when it releases. Yeah, sometime in December. Okay. But people can pre-order now. If you go to Amazon and you type in Energize, you should see it right there. Let's do it. Awesome. Well, Dr. Bruce, as always, thank you so much for, you know, giving us so much wisdom about perhaps the most important thing that we can do for ourselves every day. The listeners of the show, people who are watching, and they care about their health. And so if you care about your health, the very first pillar of that health has got to be sleep. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And I just want to wish all of your listeners sweet dreams. And don't forget, figure out what your chronotype is. I promise you it will change your life. Awesome stuff.